here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi everyone, this is Cece. I'm wishing all our listeners a very happy new year, filled with lots of great books because a successful writer is always a voracious reader, ambition because I believe it should beat anxiety, and inspiration because there's no such thing as being too inspired. Happy 2022. May all your storyteller dreams come true. And thank you for spending the year with us. I hope you'll join us again in the year to come. Thank you to all the listeners of The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. We're so glad you spent the past year with us or more uh, learning about the craft of writing and the business of publishing. We hope that all of our expertise has helped you in some way on your journey because you guys have certainly helped me in terms of you know, building a wonderful community this year. And I've been so blessed to, to be doing this podcast and we wish everybody a happy and healthy new year. And we look forward to spending more time with you on the podcast. 
Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. Today we have Veronica Park from Fuse Literary joining us as our guest agent once again. And she will be chatting with our two guest authors, Joanne and Galen, who are on the show with us today to answer any questions she has and who will have the opportunity to pick her brain. So welcome, Veronica and Joanne. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Alrighty. So Joanne, why don't you kick us off by reading us your query letter? Okay, great. Dear Bianca, as a regular listener of your podcast and a member of a newly formed writing group brought together by you, I was delighted to hear your call for middle grade submissions. I am submitting Tarot Girl, working title, an upper middle grade realistic fiction novel complete at 65,000 words. It is a step up for readers of Erin and Trotta Kelly's Hello Universe, who enjoyed the mystique of fortune-telling stones, and it captures the parochial school milieu as depicted in In the Role of Brie Hutchins by Nicole Mellaby. When 12-year-old Katie McGrath is recruited by her grandmother to help with the tarot card presentation, Katie decides it's time to test drive her alter ego, Tarot Girl, despite her mother's objection to the cards. At the presentation, Katie runs into Aubrey Lane, a judgy classmate at St. Catherine's Regional School. Aubrey, adjusting to her newly developed curves and the unwanted stares they bring, uses her sharp tongue and a protective shield of makeup to deflect the constant attention, especially from cool kid Scott Hellinger. Katie, wanting to impress Aubrey, offers her a tarot card reading. Enchanted by the cards and unsure of Scott's intentions, Aubrey accepts. During the reading, Katie is influenced by her momentary power over Aubrey, and she purposely misreads a card, telling Aubrey that Scott can be trusted. Aubrey and Scott become St. Catherine's most popular couple, and Katie gains confidence with the cards, writing an article about them for the school newspaper and offering readings to friends. When Scott inevitably proves himself to be untrustworthy, Aubrey resents Katie for both the bad advice and Katie's new self-confidence. Aubrey initiates a smear campaign against Katie that ignites school politics, putting a teacher's job at risk, and landing Katie on the brink of expulsion. Almost too late, the girls realize that the cards only have as much power as you give them. Written in dual points of view, Tarot Girl explores what happens when Katie and Aubrey are distracted by each other and the cards to the point of losing themselves. I am currently a youth services librarian at a public library. In my former career as a sixth grade teacher and a middle school administrator, I organized and facilitated a plethora of book-related events for students, staff, and caregivers. I am a member of SCBWI, a former Catholic school student, and an amateur tarot enthusiast. I have had several articles published in educational journals. This is my first book. Sincerely, Joanne. Love it, Joanne. And as someone who collects tarot cards, I especially love this concept. Right. Veronica. I also collect tarot cards. Oh, oh word. What, what are the chances? Okay, <laughs> Veronica, let us know what you think of that query letter. Okay, so I must begin with a disclaimer. You have either gotten the best or the worst possible agent to talk about this query, depending on your feelings. Um, so as someone who, you know, collects tarot cards and has kind of studied them for a while, I'm also a middle grade author. So it's hilarious to me that like, sometimes, you know, it's sometimes you want someone whose personal experiences are going to really inform their opinions. Sometimes you don't want that. Right. Yes. So in this case, it's like, I'm going to be a bit, a bit opinionated. No one's ever accused me of not having an opinion, but I, but I will say that I'm, I'm uniquely qualified to give you some, some tips that you can completely ignore if you want, just based on my experience. So the first thing um, that jumped out at me that always jumps out at me is whenever someone says fiction novel in a query, it's a small thing, but it's redundant, right? Novels are fiction. You can use one or the other, but ideally not both. It's not going to like make anyone turn your query down unless they're 
someone you don't want to work with anyway, right? So overall, my biggest thing about this query um, is, is so you're calling it up, upper middle grade, which is also what I write. Generally speaking, middle grade, and again, this is, this is all over the place. It's not really standardized across the board in our industry. But generally speaking, um, you know, middle grade starts at like around 10 and goes up to 12. So this is actually pretty solidly if your main character is 12. It does feel upper, though, in that a lot of the themes you're discussing are very YA. As a middle grade author, I've often been told by editors, like, this is too angsty for middle grade, or this is too much romance for middle grade, or there's too many themes. Personally, though, I am a huge fan of like sex positivity, for example, in in all kid lit, um, talking about things like puberty, like the Judy Bloom era very much influenced me. So it's not necessarily a deal breaker to have, you know, characters who are having like romances and relationships at this age, but you will probably see some agents and some editors who personally are like, oh no, not in my middle grade, right? So I'm warning you about that ahead of time. Um, the other thing that jumped out at me about this is it's really well written um, how, and you, you've done a great job of introducing these characters. I'm a very character-driven reader and a very character-driven agent. And so I love it when you lead with the character arc and not necessarily the plot, which is great. Th- that being said, um, you do this thing that I've seen a lot. When you have a dual POV, um, you, you usually want to kind of concentrate each character's POV to its own paragraph. What you're doing here in your first paragraph is you're introducing Katie. And then halfway through the paragraph, you're switching to talk more about um, Aubrey in a way that kind of can get confusing. And because you don't mention this dual point of view until the third paragraph, I found myself going, oh, like, who's the main character, right? Uh, the other thing I will say is dual POV. It's a it's an industry thing, but I automatically think when you're doing a dual POV, I start thinking romance. Uh, I don't know if it's supposed to be a romance or not, but I literally wrote in all caps at the bottom of the of the third paragraph is romance question mark. As you know, also also as a queer person, like I'm not going to rule that out because it's two girls. So if this was YA, I 100% would be like, yes, you're like let's do this. Tell me more. I'm I'm not not saying that, but it, I do have some concerns about just the framing. And again, as someone, I'm so torn because as someone who is emotionally basically 14 years old, uh, still. I, I completely am on board with the level of intrigue and sophistication of these girls and their rivalry and their potential romance and, you know, the, the drama. And I know you you mentioned that you work at a school, so I'm sure you've also seen the drama. But I will tell you that that's going to be a thing you're going to find yourself grappling with, uh, in my experience. What Not just editors, not just agents. Um, some readers, parents who will gatekeep for their children, for example, will say, this is too much. This is too sophisticated. You know, there's, there's a lot of themes happening. So in my experience, it, the more you prepare for that and have like your answers and your responses ready to go for that, again, not necessarily a deal breaker. You're just looking for an agent who's going to help you walk that line, right? That was a lot of words, I know. But um, yeah, the only other thing I was going to say is formatting wise, this might just be a quirk, but you want to block format your queries um, instead of doing, you know, double space like it's a manuscript uh, because it makes it a lot easier to read and it makes it look a little less wordy. I have a feeling you're about perfect on your word count for this query. It just looks longer than it actually is. Wonderful, Veronica. So, Jane, can we ask the questions? Why did you choose, you know, upper middle grade as opposed to YA and why, you know, the, the I'm not going to say problematic themes, but certainly the things that are going to make it a bit tougher for you to, to sell or get representation. So take us through that. I'd love to hear your reasoning. I think I chose upper middle grade because I feel that having worked in a middle school, grades six, seven, and eight, I think that's a different focus. I think of middle grade more as grades four, five, six, with a little overlap in six. I know that kids read up, 
So younger kids will, it will be younger kids and not necessarily 12 year olds reading the book. So you do make a good point, but it does get, there is a scene eventually. So I have worked in a middle school, as I said, and as an assistant principal, I handle discipline and I have seen some things uh, that uh, one of them that I included later in the book where an inappropriate text is sent, a picture is sent from one character to another, which happened in, to a sixth grade to an 11 year old. So I know it happens. And for that, in anticipation of that, I, I kind of went up with it. So, um, but I, your point is taken that I would need to find an agent who would help me walk that line and uh, really think, does it really need to go there? Does it really need to have that? And what are you really trying to get at? Yeah. I would actually also challenge because some of it is, you know, oh, is it, is it a problem with the project? Is it a problem with where the industry is right now? Right. And so asking yourself whether I don't necessarily think the answer is to censor yourself and to take out content, but you might want to ask yourself if these characters are, you know, um, they're 12 years old and they're going through this stuff. Why couldn't they be 14 and going through this? Because that would actually put it into upper way, you know, like that cusp of heading into high school. Again, you still will have some people that will ask you about it, but you always want to have a strong answer ready to go. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. And and for our listeners, you know, we're never saying that this is a problem with your manuscript or you. We're saying this could be a, a problem with the industry, as Veronica said. And maybe it's a case of they need to catch up with that. Uh, and maybe we need writers like Joanne who will help them catch up with that. So, um, Veronica, can you think of books in the genre that she could perhaps reach out to agents who've represented things that straddle the line a bit more? Because to my mind, those would be the agents she's going to want to query. Well, I mean, as someone who kind of, you know, like I think of my formative things, I think of like, you know, just for example, like Judy Bloom's masterclass, how she talks about being one of the first writers to ever talk about periods um, or use the F word in a middle grade, for example. I do think that we are definitely really behind as an industry. And that's not something that a single writer is going to be able to solve with one book. I know like Lori Halsey Anderson is another one that immediately jumps to mind as someone who's kind of shown that even if adults think this topic is too heavy, and I'm, I'm another one of those writers, by the way, you know, who it's like adults might think that this topic is too heavy for kids, but I lived this when I was this age. And I know what it's like to have adults tell you that you're dealing with things that are above your, you know, pay grade, basically. But, th- but that being said, particularly in middle grade, you and you know this because you're a librarian and you are an educator, you know, you have to get through layers and layers and layers. And if you look at what's happening in Texas, I have three clients who are put on that list of books to ban because there's too much queer content, too much, you know, BIPOC experiences, things that certain adults think that kids shouldn't be allowed to get hold of. And so if you are in, you know, if you're in that group of people that are going to find yourself trying to kind of push the boundaries of what is quote unquote acceptable for kids to read, if kids can go through, you know, active shooter drills at school, why can't they be reading about things like that? And that's something that, you know, again, it's a conversation we're having at the highest levels. I have this conversation with publishers and editors all the time. And we all kind of have this similar thing where it's like, at the end of the day, you have to get people to be willing to buy this book, be willing to put it in a bookstore, be willing to put it in the library, or these kids are never going to get their hands on it. They don't have Amazon accounts and credit cards, you know? So um, that is, I think, one of the biggest challenges currently. And that's why we're losing a lot of our young readership to, you know, Tumblr and AO3, because kids can go and read about things. Um, without being gay kept a lot of the time in that case. So again, I'm not going to go, Bianca, I promise I'm not going to go off on a rant. That is one of the major reasons I'm an agent, actually. So uh, it's not a problem we can solve today, but we're trying. Sometimes rants are totally necessary. And I was just thinking back to the early 2000s when I was volunteering with HIV AIDS orphans. 
they had lost their parents to the disease. They themselves had the disease. And we as volunteers were looking around desperately for literature to reflect their experience. And that dealt with being HIV positive and that dealt with losing your whole family to this pandemic. And there was nothing at the time. And it was so incredibly, incredibly frustrating because there were thousands and thousands and thousands of children experiencing this. And then finally, you know, the market started catching up with that. And it's, you know, it's just frustrating that we do have those gatekeepers who are going to say, oh, it's too old for these kids. But I'm sorry, if you're born HIV positive and you've lost your whole family to it, it's not too old for you to be learning about that. Absolutely. And and just most recently, I think about one of my authors, Shannon Delusky, who writes kind of in that upper middle grade space. And she'll, you know, her, her debut was basically about what it's like to be living in a home with domestic violence and how kids of that age, you know, there is no such thing as, oh, I'm going to run home and I'm going to be safe. It's actually the most dangerous place for you. So I get a lot of pushback on that when I, um, you know, when I go on submission with projects like that from agents and editors who are either neurotypical or have a happy home life and they go, oh, you know, why isn't this kid more scared to be having adventures in Narnia or whatever? Why don't they want to go home? Aren't they afraid? And I'm constantly just like, not everyone, <laughs> you yeah, know, has yeah. that. And so there's things like that, that you're, you're always going to come across where it's like, someone's like, well, this wasn't my exact childhood experience. So it doesn't feel middle grade to me. And that's not something you can fix, um, except by just really executing it well. And just kind of knowing your market better than the people that are saying, no, know your market. So read everything. I mean, I can think of like five YA titles off the top of my head, like Tiffany Jackson, Lane Clark's uh, debut that's coming out. Uh, Love Times Infinity is literally, you know, about some, some some themes that a lot of people would have been like, wow, this is like too much for kids to read, but it's not. Yeah, I'm busy mentoring an 11 year old writer at the moment who's absolutely phenomenal. And we're reading together from the desk of Zoe Washington yeah. by Janae Marks. And that deals with, you know, having a parent who's oh, incarcerated. Right, right. And, you know, so, so that was, was wonderful as well. I had a quick question on my comps. So my comps focus on, like I said, a little bit of mysticism and a little bit of the parochial school milieu. I found another comp since I wrote this. I showed it to the group, Bianca, that you helped us to form. And since then, I have revised it. So the book I found was called My Eyes Are Up Here about a girl who's uh, the whole book is the theme of she's already developed and it's uh, the journey of her body image. So I thought I might use that. And then I just discovered there's a book called, um, it's new from September, Loteria, um, Lotteria. It's a, uh, based on the Mexican card game that's like bingo, except instead of bingo balls, it has uh, cards with characters on them. And it's the, a young girl, I think, journey using with based on the cards. So that feels very similar. So my question was, with the comps, I'm not sure which aspect I want to feature. So any, any thoughts about that? I have one. So, so that my eyes are up here is uh, Laura Zimmerman, right? Or I'm not hundred percent sure about this because I'm just Googling it. Um, okay. is, this, is this a YA comp or a middle grade? It's a YA. Yeah. So another thing that I find a lot of writers come across and that this happened to the last time we talked about uh, queers when I was on here, we, some people will use comps that they feel like fit the themes better, but they're not really thinking about comps the way you should be thinking about comps, which is, this is my target readership. This is my target demographic. So this book will appeal to fans of X and Y. I usually okay. say choose one comp for voice and one comp for vibes, um, even if it's not in the same you know subgenre. But generally, you want it to be in the same category as your book at the very okay. least, because you're not going to you know steal readers from an adult readership, especially if they're like, I don't read middle grade, you know. Um, so okay. especially in middle grade, uh, you really want to use comps from middle grade. 
because okay. that's also going to reinforce that issue that in, you know, an agent's looking at this going, okay, you say upper middle grade, but the main character is 12 and the themes are very young adulty. Okay. Um, so yeah, really look into that. And again, maybe that's your answer. Maybe it's actually YA that you're writing and you just, you know, um, didn't yeah. realize it. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> okay. All right. You ready for the summary? Yeah, we're ready. So um, the, each section of the book starts with the name and meaning of a tarot card that captures the feel of that section. So the book opens with The Fool, which represents a call to action. Now is the time. Uh, we're going to get the ball rolling. And with this begins chapter one. Katie has just pulled the death card, which signifies that a change is coming. So she's cleaning her room. She's thinking about the death card in the context of the beginning of seventh grade. And like a, um, a seventh grader who's been in the same school since first grade, everything is boring. And she's starting to feel like the boringness of the school is rubbing off on her. Um, we see her mother sweep into the room to do some cleaning and check on her. And Katie hides the cards. And we pick up on the tension between Katie and her mother over the cards. The next scene, Katie goes to visit her grandmother. It is their Saturday routine. We see them making lunch. Then they settle down to talk about the cards. It was her gram who introduced her to the cards. They have a very special bond. Uh, her grandmother reiterates that the death card foretells of a change. She adds that there will be opportunities and doors opening. She also says that Katie will be a participant in this change, um, an active participant, not just passive, which kind of goes over Katie's head. And the chapter ends with Katie looking forward to the change. The second chapter begins, uh, it's Aubrey. We learn that she started St. Catherine's in the middle of the previous school year. She settled in, she made friends. So she's not quite sure why she's feeling um, anxious about the new school year. She's headed out to meet her friends, to buy shoes, but she has to pass through the living room where her mother is, and she's hoping to avoid her mother, and that's where the pages end. Wonderful. Thank you, Joanne. Okay, Veronica, your take on them. Okay, so um, first of all, <laughs> again, another disclaimer. As an agent submitting work in the middle grade space, literally the number one most common feedback I get from editors when they read middle grade is that the voice just didn't feel middle grade enough. Sometimes I feel like that does mean like, oh, this didn't feel like my exact, you know, 12 year old experience of my life. Uh, but that's not necessarily always the case. It's, it's one of those things that editors will say over and over again, like middle grade is just so difficult to nail the tone, the vibes. And so, um, again, this did feel to me personally, maybe not everyone, it did feel a little bit more YA, even, even though in, it's not really thematically, it's more just the, the, the wording and the phrasing and kind of, I hate to use the word sophistication because it's not that kids aren't sophisticated. I mean, if you go, if you talk to a 12 year old kid, like they understand things more deeply and succinctly often. And so for me, middle grade is often about not just choosing, you know, the, the best word, like the exact right word, you know, instead of multiple words, a lot of the time, especially when you're describing a feeling that kind of, that kind of bombastic yet, you know, prose light vibe of, you know, high drama, low word count is kind of what we look for generally. Um, but again, that's just me. The biggest thing that I think struck me though, about this is, uh, first of all, as again, as an agent, my first thought was, oh no, we start with an excerpt from what what's labeled here is from tarot for teens, which I looked up and that's, that's, uh, you know, a book that I'm guessing you did not write under a pseudonym. And so one issue I have, one question is, you know, if you're, if you're going to be referencing someone else's work in your text, you first of all, definitely want to mention that in the query, but also if you're story is really reliant on someone else's work and you're writing fiction and not nonfiction, not only are you going to want to cite your sources, you're going to have some licensing, uh, some permissions issues, right? Because you can't just quote someone else's book, you know, at every, at the beginning of every chapter without getting permission from that person. Uh, technically it might fall under fair use, but it's dicey enough that agents might be like, no, 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 no. 
I would recommend honestly writing up your own because you're studying tarot. Um, I did. That's, that's the thing I did. People, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cause it says here from tarot for teens is what it says. That's why I immediately was like, Oh, I changed it. Yes. Okay. Thank yeah, you. Definitely yes. take that out though. Right. Because you want it to be your own intellectual property, um, your own, you know, uh, if you, especially if you're doing tarot, the next thing that caught me is you start with the fool and then you immediately pull the death card. So there's like a dissonance because those are two very different cards and vibes. <laughs> um, and I know there's probably a meaning for that, but the thing I find is that a lot of times a writer will do something for an intention that makes sense to the writer. But if it's not immediately apparent to the reader, and if we're talking opening pages, a lot of people are just going to lose them right then, especially if they're like me and they know tarot, right? So again, it, it's one of those things that you always want to look at, you know, who is, who is my biggest question I literally wrote at the end of this is like, okay, who is the audience for this? Like, who is your, are you trying to get to 12, 13, 14 year old kids, or even like you said, kids read up. So really you're looking at like 10 and 11 year old kids who are going to be reading this. Are you looking for kids that already have an interest in tarot? Are you looking for kids that are kind of sneaking and reading about tarot when their Catholic parents don't want them to? It's a very interesting prospect you've given yourself, right? You've given yourself a lot of work to do to get to this very specific type of kid who's going to be the reader. But as we talked about before, you're also going to have to get through nine adults, you know, to get to this reader. And so how many, what, what kind of adult are you trying to get to that's going to get you to this kid and also help you navigate through all the obstacles of, you know, is this, is this middle grade? Is it YA? Are these themes too sophisticated, et cetera? All the questions. Again, I never, it's very important to me as an agent that writers don't hear my questions and my challenges and take that as rejection. For me, the reason I ask the questions is sometimes just to check and see if you've thought about it first, but also like you understanding and being able to defend your decisions shows me that you did something intentionally and not accidentally. And so it's like when you ask someone a question like, oh, you know, who are the readers? What's, what are your comps? And they, they literally have not read. This happens to me all the time. It's like very clearly this person has not read the books that their readers, that they're trying to steal from those other authors, not steal, borrow, share, you know, <laughs> selectively. But, you know, if you're trying to share readers with like Lori Hall Anderson, or you're trying to share readers with, you know, any of these other authors, you have to ask yourself what you're bringing to the table that this other author didn't bring. And also how did that person market their book in such a way that they reached the reader that you're also trying to reach? So these are the questions I ask, not to stress you out, to help you. Okay, we've, we've only got four minutes left. So Joanne, what questions do you have for Veronica or what replies do you want to give to her while you hear and can pick her brain? Okay, I would say, so I did, I was envisioning for this a, a younger reader who, you know, when you, you start making your own choices, uh, choosing from either the school library or public library at this, at this age, you're exposed to different things. So something that would uh, intrigue them, like tarot cards with training wheels is what I was hoping to appeal to readers. And I even envision in my grand vision that whoever picks this up would work, we'd work together. We'd form like a, a tarot card deck with training wheels for like the younger users, perhaps not so much nudity that would appeal to a younger reader. So that is my vision. And it's, I, from what I hear you saying, it's not matching with the tone and the words on the page seem to be older. So, um, so that's yet. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Another question that I had, are we still using realistic fiction or is it now contemporary? I know you said don't use fiction, but are we saying contemporary now? That's kind of a preference issue for me. I mean, I can, I feel like it's kind of like fiction novel. It can be kind of redundant, uh, contemporary setting is usually something that we're actually classifying as a subgenre now. 
So as long as it's not magical realism, I think that is worth mentioning because you do have like some magical arts and and kind of Wicca, you know, uh, practice happening in this. And so I do think that there are some readers who might see tarot and be like, oh, there's magic in this book, you know, which technically, theoretically, you could say yes, but realistically, technically, it's actually more like a religion if you if you want to really split hairs. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. My answer to that would be, I guess, probably go with contemporary over over realistic and, and contemporary just kind of usually unless you're also throwing in supernatural or, you know, magical realism or speculative, then, you know, they're going to assume it's bounded by science ish. I don't know. That's not a very good answer. I'm sorry. (laughs) Oh, that's okay. I started off adding magical realism and I stopped because number one, I don't write it that well. And number two, in the end, when she's she's forced, not forced, but she's presenting about tarot cards to the the PTA and she's making the case that it's not magic, like because to her, it's really not. She's telling them they're just cards that help me. And so I had to separate out that it's not magic for the purposes of this book. So I I took out the magic. Also, Joanne, we have discussed on the podcast how magical realism is chiefly Latin American narrative yes. strategy. And yes. so unless you're writing Latin American yeah, narratives, right. you shouldn't be using that um, classification anyway. Yeah. What okay. What other questions do you have for Veronica before we, we move on to Galen? Um, another question I had, well, I did have one for you, Bianca, and that was, um, I know that you've recommended the um, the preferred or recommended te- uh, font for texting, and I, I don't remember what that was. What do you say? So what, what I usually recommend is Lucida Sands, that's how I pronounce it, I pronounce everything wrong, Unicode. <laughs> It's it, there's probably some poor font um, designer who's like freaking out now at my pronunciation, but yeah, L U C I D A sans Unicode. Okay, uh, and then I have one last question for Veronica. So aside from where, how it struck you of the tone and um, who my audience might be, the actual words on the page uh, was there enough tension? Was or would you think forget about that and just focus on who my audience is before I, I'm worrying about if I'm drawing them in with my first pages? Well, I mean, you never want to forget about that, right? It's important. Right, right. Um, but I do think it, it felt well written. It felt paced. Okay. Um, it just mostly, I just found it my difficult to ground myself just wondering, because that's just the type of brain I have. I read synopses before I read the sample. That makes me strange based on a lot of agents. And so for an agent that's jumping in and just reading the pages, I think that they'll feel a lot more grounded than I did after expecting. So one thing I'll always say in my comments is you want the tone and the positioning of your query to really match what we're experiencing in the pages, because you never want people to have that cognitive dissonance going into your pages of like, what, what's, hap- what's happening? Where are we? I thought I was getting off in Narnia and now suddenly we're on, we're on the moon and I'm very confused and a little scared. That's, that's the vibe, basically. V- vibe check, as we call it, is what it felt like. So n- not necessarily wrong. It's just my expectations and then what happened didn't align as much as I would have liked them to for me to be fully invested. From from a creative uh, writing instructor's perspective, Joanne, the, the tension, I liked it. Uh, it was well written, et cetera, et cetera. So from my side, I thought that was all really good. It's it's just that disconnect that I think is is an issue. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Okay, Joanne, it was lovely chatting with you. All right. So that was our first submitter. And now we're moving on to Galen. Welcome, Galen. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Will you kick us off by reading that query letter? Of course. Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, the shit no one tells you about writing has been my podcast find of the summer. Even though I write mostly fantasy, listening to your books with hooks has substantially improved my own query letter and opening pages, and I look forward every week to listening to your kind and constructive feedback with my morning coffee. 
Captain of the Guard is a standalone dual POV adult fantasy novel. It is complete at 100,000 words and will appeal to readers who enjoyed the lush world building of the Priory of the Orange Tree and the complex friendships of City of Lies. The manuscript was substantially revised in 2021 through the Author Mentor Match program. Sig should be the best captain of the guard in memory. She's ferociously loyal, brilliant with a sword, and charismatic as hell. But it's an open secret in the Kingdom of March that she can't spill blood without spiraling into a panic attack. She's always had the support of her best friend, Gwen, one of March's best spies. But Gwen has been running from her past her entire life, hardly able to look at the sister she rescued almost too late from a desperate life on the streets. When an ambush on the sacred silk forests by an ancient enemy leaves four soldiers dead and the first attack on marish soil in decades, Gwen travels to the enemy kingdom to embed herself in the king's court. She soon uncovers evidence of the conspiracy far greater than they had imagined, sending Sig on a desperate quest for aid from their allies. As the walls close in on March and their enemies advance, Gwen's lies are entangled with her loyalties, and she must decide how many of her new friends she is willing to betray for her old country. Meanwhile, the secret Sig has guarded since childhood threatens to unravel her position, her faith, and her very identity. Originally from upstate New York, I moved to England at 18 to find adventure at Cambridge University. I returned to the U.S. for graduate school, and my doctoral fieldwork in Greenland and Svalbard inspired many of the landscapes in this book. I now live in soggy Olympia, Washington, with my fiancé, an orchid that makes roots instead of flowers, and a large angry cat. Sincerely, Galen. Wonderful, Galen. Thank you. Veronica, what's your feedback on that? Honestly, this is a really strong query. Um, I, I will say like this, this is probably too much to share, but whenever I see a word count that's like 100,000 words or more these days, my brain just goes, oh, but this is very common for that and especially adult fantasy. That being said, I really, really like how character driven this query is as someone who is, as I've mentioned before, kind of a character driven reader, a ship driven reader, if you will. Um, and as, as an agent, the thing that I specialize in most is, you know, editing for character and for kind of the humanity of it all. Um, I always find that when I see like a high work, a high word count, and if it's high fantasy, for example, my limitation as an as an editor is to see that and go, oh man, like that's a lot of world building. And that's not really my specialty. Character building, yes. World building, not so much. But for me, as someone who wouldn't normally reach for, you know, a hundred thousand word adult fantasy as a rule, you immediately captured my interest. And that's great because that means you're going to be appealing to people on, you know, both sides of the aisle, different types of brains, different types of readers, um, at least in my opinion. So I really thought the line that jumped out at me that I was really into is, um, you know, when you describe your character, it's an open secret that she can't spill blood without spiraling into a panic attack as a you know neurodivergent person. I was also immediately like, yes, let's get more, you know, disability representation and neurodivergence representation in high fantasy, because how often do we see that? Um, you know, we have a lot of people who are like definitely alcoholic and, you know, like the Witcher, for example, or like people that clearly need to go to therapy. But how often do we really talk about that and make it like a major plot point in, in a healthy and progressive way? I think that's awesome. Um, again, I love how you're introducing these characters by their relationships to each other and going off of this, like I talked about before in, in multiple other things, it's very important to me overall that in addition to kind of selling your project and leading with leading with your strengths, that the vibe and tone of your query matches the vibe and tone of your sample. And so reading this, my expectations are kind of high um, going in thinking like, oh, I'm really excited to meet these characters. Like, please don't let the first chapter be like a 20 page thing about trees, like Tolkien style, right? Or like barrels, 
And I, I was pleasantly surprised by that as well. The only thing I really, um, the only thing that kind of, that I kind of put as a point on your query is you go a little bit more into the details than we would normally see in a query. It's, it's, it's bordering on synopsis at some parts, which I know is not a real word, but yeah. So like, uh, you know, as you go, as you go by when an ambush on the sacred silk forest, which is, I think your paragraph three in here, it's still great, but I would try and condense that if you can, um, because it's, Again, it's not spaced out, so I can't really tell exactly how long it is, but it, it feels a little more meaty than you might need to go. Um, that said, it's it's really, really well written, and I like it a lot. Wonderful. Do you have any questions, Galen, for Veronica based on her feedback? Uh, yeah, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. I did have just a couple of questions on the for the query letter. One of them, I wasn't sure how how or if I should include this in the query, but all of the character all of the main characters and many of the side characters are queer, as am I. Um, but it's like really not an important uh, plot point. It's like not relevant at all to the plot. So I wasn't sure if that was something that I should include. And if so, like if there was a place that that should slide in or if I should just leave that because it, it becomes apparent in the first two chapters, I think. Well, I'll tell you what I would do um, as, a, as a fellow, you know, queer writer. Um, I would do like one of the things that I'm always kind of talking about as an agent is, you know, we need diversity to be more just matter of fact and like not the plot point. And so mm-hmm. having characters that are just kind of matter of fact, like queer as 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 just how things are. Um, I think that there's a way to, uh, you know, maybe slide that into your market paragraph when you talk about the standalone dual POV adult fantasy novel, especially whenever I see dual POV. I've said this a million times. I know. I don't know if this is just a me thing. Again, I'm like huge ship driven person, basically, you know, what, what the internet children would call trash sometimes for a good ship. Um, I, I find that whenever I see dual POV, I immediately, my, there's like a little thing that goes off in my head that goes romance, romance. This is, are the romances this is what's happening. And if you're introducing me to, you know, femme presenting characters, I'm going to be like, are they ship? Can I ship this? Can I ship these people together? So giving me permission in your query to ship whoever I want um, is essentially something that I think is like queer culture, right? But also um, there are some writers who will actually do the opposite of that and like be like, no, like everyone here is like very like aggressively heterosexual. So to me, I think if you have that progressive approach in your story, I do think that's a selling point. I do think that's something you should mention. Um, it's almost like when you add a, you know, some people will add a content warning, for example, for things that might trigger people. I think that it's just as good to add a content warning for you're going to love this queer agent friend, you know, like, because this is something that you're going to see yourself in. And so there's a way to do it in a subtle and not like a, you know, hashtaggy way. And, and I think that, again, it's, it's something to be open and matter of fact and upfront about, but don't feel like you need to sell it, if that makes sense. And I can't see your face, so I don't know if you're nodding or what. Like... <laughs> I am nodding. That, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks. And I like putting it in the metadata paragraph. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Um, okay. And then my only other question on the query was, so, um, and you kind of answered this already but I was trying to keep it really light on names because I I feel like it can be a little bit overwhelming to have too many names, but I was a little bit nervous that there was like a loss of specificity in there that made it a little generic. And I wonder if I overcorrected by putting too much plot into those uh, synopsis paragraphs. I mean, maybe a little bit, like I mentioned that there's parts of it that it's like, well, this, this, for example, I think your paragraph, let's see, one, two, three, I'll put this in my notes later too. But like, I think your, your second to last paragraph or no, it's your third. I'm sorry. They're all kind of bunched together, which is why I like block formatting. Cause then I could point at it and be like, this is number three. I think it's your third paragraph. I feel like that could probably be distilled down to a single sentence and tacked on to your second paragraph. 
The other thing I've mentioned before is if it's a dual POV narrative, I like to see the character point of view for each character distilled into its very own paragraph. Um, It's kind of more of a romance convention, but I think it works really well in this case because the question you're asking is basically like, how can I make sure it's clear who I'm talking about without just naming everyone every five seconds? What I would do is I would actually have your two POV characters have each each you know paragraph kind of introduce here's this person here's what they want more than anything in the world here's where they can't have it here's what's about to happen to just really f up their day and then you know then the next paragraph here's this other character who and if you're really good you can make it seem like almost kind of an oil and water type situation where it's like character a wants this character b wants the exact opposite of what character a wants so we already feel the tension it's between the lines um and then you kind of going off of you know having that kind of set you know here's what i want here's why i can't have it here's what here's the catalyst um, and then the third paragraph being more of your, and then plot wise, these characters are thrown together, ragtag team of whatever the team together or the couple must accomplish this X, Y, Z, like distill it as much as you can. Cause you have to remember the query is to sell the project. The query's main job is to get me to skip past and be like, all right, I got to read this like immediately. Um, so making me want to kind of leaving some to be desired is okay. And for me, the type of reader that I am, I'm not going to sit here in your query and go, but how does the government work? You know, what is what is happening with the king and queen right now? I don't care about that. I want to know why these two characters are about to fight with each other. And I'm excited about that. So, yes, um, I think I think you've done a really good job. Just pair it back a little more. And then by putting those pair, you know, those characters into their own paragraph, I think you'll find less of a need to over explain, if that makes sense. Okay, thanks. That makes a lot of sense. Wonderful. Galen, will you give us an indication of what's in those opening pages? Uh, yeah, sure. So it starts in a forest. We meet Sig, her friend Mangit, and the heir to the kingdom, and they're riding through the spider silk forests to one of their remote military outposts. Um, and then Menga is being uncharacteristically aggressive. And when Sig confronts him, he tells her he's struggling to contain his anger and distrust of his friends. Um, Sig reassures him and she swears never to betray him. But then as they continue riding on, Sig's magic alerts her that there's trouble ahead. Wonderful. Okay, Veronica, what was your take on those opening pages? So I first, this first line of this is, the air was stifling, our mage was fuming, and my horse wanted to murder me, which is just a banger first line. Um, also, I get heavy D&D vibes in the best possible way, like a kind of critical role feel, which I, you know, again, as someone, if you're kind of an interloper in a given genre, as I am, like high fantasy, I come and go, you know, I, I'm not, I, I definitely wouldn't, wouldn't consider myself like a diehard, you know, have read every single thing, you know, that Robert Jordan has ever written, for example. Um, but I definitely, I definitely find that for me, like that kind of band of brotherhood vibe, that kind of like getting the team together, ragtag group of misfits feel that a lot of these high fantasies that I've seen that I've really liked lately have um, kind of that arcane vibe, if you will. Um, I really, I find that that approach to making it kind of feel accessible and like funny and not just grim dark all day immediately grabs me. I also found it interesting that you're writing in first person POV, um, which is something that maybe it's just me. I haven't seen really frequently. I feel like the convention, at least in the past, has been to write, you know, adult high fantasy and third limited um, or sometimes third omniscient. And so for me, um, I found that kind of refreshing and a little more accessible. It made it easier for me to relate to and engage with the characters right on the first page. Um, there were a couple things that I 
just noticed that are not deal breakers by any stretch. Like I noticed there was a tense shift at one point, which happens when authors will revise a lot of times from like first present to or first present to first perfect. Um, so it was like, I swear the spider bowed, bowed back was one of the things that's like, oh, you went into present. Um, and then the other thing, I love it when you can reveal character drama and, and if not backstory, one of the, my biggest beefs, if you will, the plural of beef is when characters will be like talking to their best friend who's known them since they were 12 and be like, I'm upset because of this thing that happened to me when I was 13 and like, no one came to my birthday party. It's like, you were there, Jeff, like, you know, so it's that kind of, as you know, Bobby kind of dialogue. Um, and so I think that, uh, like, you know, there's, there's parts where it's like, I don't know, say I've just been so getting so angry recently. It's like, there's this voice in my head telling me that every round is lying to me and I get so scared. Sometimes I don't even trust my mother. Like, that's a great like rant for a character to go on, but I would challenge you to let your characters lie a little bit more, especially in the beginning, especially as a screenwriter too. Like, that's one thing we always talk about is let your characters lie. Let your characters hold back things of the truth. Um, again, not a deal breaker. I would totally request more pages of this. Uh, the other thing I wrote down was, yeah, again, I was very excited by the fact that the first pages of this were just as character driven as the query, which I really didn't care about the trees or, you know, the maps. If you have a map at the beginning of this book, I will be that person flipping back and forth, be like, wait, what country is this? Where are they? You know, where's this road lead? But I don't need that in the text if I have a map. So, um, yeah, this, I got vibes from this. I would say it has a crossover feel to it. Um, that I, I'm trying to think of a good, I mean, everyone always uses Leah Bardugo as a comp for that kind of YA, but not YA kind of like adulty feel. Um, there's a couple of other series I can think of more recently that kind of have that, but I feel like you definitely would do well to also target, you know, kind of like a Wednesday books type, you know, um, crossover imprint with this. Because just, especially if the queer, you know, the queer characters and they've got strong rep and everyone I know is watching Arcane right now on Netflix. So definitely put that somewhere in your query or the subject line, just if you want a little tip of people to immediately read your stuff, because it's, it's got that, that feeling, which I like. Wonderful, Veronica. Galen, do you have questions? Yeah, thank you so much. This, this gives me a lot to think about and chew on, and I really appreciate that. I guess just like that, the first question I had to the, in terms of the crossover imprint, so that's like just noting it like in the metadata paragraph of the query that it could have crossover appeal. Yep. You could put that in the subject line if you want, or in the metadata paragraph. I'm so glad you asked that question actually, because this is the other fun thing about the industry. Depending on who you ask, crossover either means it's for adults, but will be read by teenagers, or it means it's for teenagers, but will be read by adults. Generally speaking in the science fiction and fantasy realms, my friends who are editors in that space have told me usually they target adult readers first, but want it to be something that teenagers will read. I think this very much qualifies as that because again, people read up, right? And so mm -hmm. when I think about, you know, when I was reading all the adult fantasy that was arguably like a little too heavy and world building and like definitely not written for me. <laughs> I think that that's something that we still do have like a kind of dearth of material, especially for, you know, young queer kids seeing themselves, um, especially in a non-problematic, non-harmful way. Uh, you know, I, again, I'm, I promise Bianca, I'm not going to go off on another rant, but there has been a tendency, especially when I was a teenager for a lot of the adult high fantasy to be very, for lack of a better word, kind of rapey. Um, and so it still kind of is that way if you walk through like Game of Thrones and a couple of other, you know, popular experiences. So I think that there's definitely a really important space for, you know, conversations about consent and high fantasy and conversations about, you know, trauma and neuro, you know, divergence and things like that. So uh, I do think that this is very fresh and it feels like something that could potentially kind of break out 
um, and, and do really well. Cool. Thank, thank you. Okay. That makes a lot of sense to put that in the query. Yeah. I have a couple other questions on the pages. Um, and one of them just in terms of like what to be submitting to agents. So this is a, cause it's dual POV and it's dual first person POV. Um, but Gwen's point of view starts in chapter two. So it doesn't start until about page 10, I think. And this was the first five pages. Is that something that I should be thinking about trying to include some of Gwen's POV or should I just uh, That's leave always a tricky question. So there's a strategy to this. And as someone who like, I was a journalist before, so like submission kind of getting, putting your best foot forward while also definitely meeting the guidelines and not breaking their rules up front. Cause that sets a bad precedent and it's not a good first impression. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I find that there's ways. So for example, like if you had a prologue, my advice is always to like, don't put the prologue in your sample. If the sample is like 10 pages, because what you're doing is you're giving someone a glimpse of not the story you're really telling, you know, you're giving someone a glimpse of the backstory a lot of the time. And so in this case, if you have dual POV, um, it's totally cool to be like, here's the first three pages of each character's POV so that you can get a taste so that you have a good guy because you want them to request more. You never want to be sitting around kicking yourself going, oh, did this person turn down? Because one of the number one feedback pieces that writers get is, I just didn't connect with the voice, which what does that mean? Nobody knows. I'm going to write a book about it someday, probably, because it's a very frustrating piece of feedback. But essentially, what that usually means is that it didn't engage me for one reason or another. So if you are have a, if you are writing a dual POV, and if your two POVs are different enough in voice that you could potentially be, maybe you miss them with a with the A POV, but you're hitting them with the, the B POV. As someone who also, again, I immediately choose my ship like five pages in. I choose my ride or die characters. I choose, you know, who's going to be my like, you know, himbo with a heart of gold that I'm going to fall in love with and like want to commit murder for by chapter five. You know, all those things like you want to give someone an opportunity to fall in love with your characters if you possibly can. So using that strategy and don't always think it is, you know, you have to follow the guidelines, but you don't always have to follow the guidelines verbatim. So, you know, it's going to be different based on which agents you're sending to. And it's important to tailor your approach individually if you possibly can for each type of agent, because this is the type of project you need to find the right agent who really gets what you're doing here. Okay, thanks. That makes sense. Yeah, the difficult thing there is I know Cece and Carly say that they don't need the um, additional POV, but then our other guest agent, Emmy Nordstrom Higdon, said that uh, they like having the other POV as well. So, you know, it's, it's kind of deciding what is your best foot forward, as, as Veronica said there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I'm a little bit nervous about it because they're both first person POVs. And I know that I did not know this when I started writing it, uh, but I know that it's a little bit trickier to do dual first person. So that's something I think about. Differentiating those voices. That's, that's the big thing. You know, you want each of the voices to be as compelling as the other voice, because that's another thing you hear from agents and editors. Oh, I love character A, but I wasn't so big on character B. So, so that's the thing. It's differentiating the voice and making them each super interesting and compelling. Okay. Thank you. Um, I just had my last question was kind of like a like a really minor one. Um, so it really starts out kind of heavy on introducing the character of her horse, who then we don't actually see the horse for like until the epilogue. So is that something that I need to be worried about or should I just let it be? I mean, I find that incredibly upsetting to learn. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, honestly, I, I think it's, uh, I don't know. It's hard to say, right? It's like, I don't know why my first thought was the Witcher and Roach. Um, and like, you know, two seconds in, you're like, this person's only friend in the world is their horse. And so they're better <laughs> 
nothing terrible better ever befall this animal. Um, you'll know this because like some people are horse people. I was a horse girl growing up. So um, I do get very invested in like the horse or the dog. <laughs> there's a, there's a common rule that a lot of agents will talk about saying like, don't kill the dog. Um, and that's, there's, there's agents who will literally turn down projects because an animal is harmed in it. So I would say that it's less about that and more about like really, really, really recognizing and being intentional about what expectations are you setting and why? So if you're setting a reader expectation that this horse is very important, is it just a comedic device? Is it just a way to kind of make people you know, feel relatable? Are you introducing the horse as something that these characters are interacting with? Because I think that's what The Witcher does really well, where it's like, it's not necessarily about the horse. It's about how this character feels about the horse. And it's, it's like their one thing that they, they hate everyone and everything, but would die for this horse. And that's why the horse is important. It's not the horse. I'm sure that there's like a craft book somewhere that uses an example better than that of like the MacGuffin, for example, that we talk about. It's like the thing, it's like the one ring. It's the thing. It's not really about the ring. It's what it represents, you know? Um, And so, yeah, I I think that that's, I can't, I can't give you a hard, fast rule for that because it's going to be about intentionality and it's going to have to be about your execution. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Right. Thank you so much, Veronica and Galen. Uh, It was wonderful having you both on as guests. And uh, we wish you much luck with this project, Galen. It sounds really, really intriguing and has a lot of promise. So please keep us posted and let us know how your querying goes. Thank you. All right, let's move to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone 
for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Before we go to today's guest, this is just a reminder that we've got the virtual retreat coming up the last weekend of January, and you definitely don't want to be missing out on that. For more details, go to my website, biancamaray.com, look at the courses, services, and retreats tab, and you'll find the full lineup there and the link on where to sign up for that. And also a reminder that our Kofi supporters get access to exclusive additional content on our Kofi page every Thursday. So if you would like access to that, Again, look at the website, biancamaray.com, and you'll find a link there on how to become a Kofi supporter. Today's guest is the number one best-selling and Hugo award-winning author of Children of Blood and Bone and its sequel, Children of Virtue and Vengeance. After graduating Harvard University with an honors degree in English literature, she received a fellowship to study West African mythology, religion, and culture in Salvador, Brazil. It was there that she discovered the inspiration for her debut novel, Children of Blood and Bone. It spent over two years on the New York Times bestseller list, and its film adaptation is currently in active development with Disney's Fox and Lucas Films. When she's not working on her novel or watching Seventeen and BTS music videos, she can be found teaching creative writing on her website, through workshops, and through her online masterclass, The Writer's Roadmap. She was recently named to the 2020 Forbes 30 Under 30 list, and her website has been named one of the 101 best websites for writers by Writer's Digest. It's my pleasure to welcome Tomi Adeyemi. What a treat we have for our listeners today. Tomi is joining us on the show. So often we get to chat to writers who've had such amazing success. It's inspiring to me and I'm sure it'll be inspiring to our listeners. Tomi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure there's been times in the past where your ears must have been burning because we have spoken about you before on the podcast. We've referenced your work. And we had somebody from Pitch Wars who was giving all of our listeners some excellent advice mm. ahead of Pitch Wars, the do's, the don'ts. Yeah. And, you know, they were talking about you as this amazing success story. And our listeners love hearing these kinds of inspirational stories. So to kick us off, could you tell us about this dazzling journey to publication that you had and, and also the part that Pitch Wars played in that journey. Yeah, it's funny when you say the word because I'm like, okay, it, it would it is a whirlwind that I think I'm still, maybe this year I caught my breath from and then I'm like, okay, you're about to start a new whirlwind. 
Um, the road to pitch wars was very, I don't know if you're, uh, if you like, and your, your audience will agree with this, but I feel like when you spend so much time writing stories, it kind of bleeds into your life. And then you're also, as you're living your life, you're also reading it like the story. So it's like on the fateful day of pitch wars. Um, (laughs) I think the year was like, I think it was 2015. It was 20 summer of 2015. Um, I had just moved to LA and I think it was like early or maybe it was like, it just gotten into September, but I find out about pitch wars and it's like one week after the submission date. And I'm just like, Oh my God, I'm beating myself up because I'm like, this competition seems amazing. I was working on my first, the first book I tried to get published, which was a very new experience for me because I've been writing since I was really little. Like writing is the first thing I ever did. I had this, I sent this picture uh, to one of my agents. It's like all of my first stories that I ever wrote. They're like in all these little colorful folders and they have these like scribbles for the covers. And I've always written, but then I, things happen in my life where I'm like, okay, I really want to try to write a book. I want to try to publish a book. And so there was the journey of like, first trying to finish a first draft. And then I'm like, oh, I've never finished a first draft. What happens now? The second draft? What are you talking? So it was just a whole process. And I think the most difficult thing for us at that stage is you don't have most, a lot of times you have to build, it takes years to build reliable sources of feedback. And so it's just you trying to figure out this crazy thing that you love, but is so much worse than every other book that you've ever like read. And so I was very attracted to Pitch Wars for the opportunity to attract top representation, but also the opportunity to work with someone who had knowledge and a point of view. So it's not just me in my head guessing about how to make the story better. So I was a little bit devastated that I had missed the submission window by like a week but then I was like you know what flip side you have 11 months and three weeks to make a really strong submission for next time so I had planned I was still working on the story I thought I was going to submit this story I ended up querying it around spring I got 63 rejections from this story and 10 of them came with feedback which I'm very grateful for. And a lot of that feedback was aligned. It was mo- it was basically in the center of the feedback or the commonality was this, like you have something, but I couldn't sell this story in this current market. And for me, that was great because I'm like, okay, well, what's selling in this current market? And I realized I actually hadn't read young adult fantasy, contemporary young adult fantasy. So I was still writing based off the books I had loved when I was a teen. But I'm like, oh, you actually haven't read anything that hasn't turned into a movie because I get curious. Like I would see the Hunger Games trailer and I'd be like, we need to know everything now. Um, So I'd read the big franchise books, but I hadn't read contemporary fantasy. And when I did, like the first book I picked up was Red Queen by Victoria Aveyard. And within two paragraphs, I remember swearing because I was like, (laughs) 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 it was within two paragraphs of that book. I was more captured in her story than I was with like until 75% of the story I was currently querying. So I immediately was like, oh, it is like a brand new world. Um, But that was exciting to me because the types of fantasies that were popular were the types of fantasies that I would love to create. Like we're we're straight into a new world. We got big magic. We have royalty. We have 
battle. I was like, oh, this is like, it was a fun opportunity. And so this is, yeah, we're still in about spring. So there's about four months till Pitch Wars. And I realized it would be a waste to submit the story, the first story I was trying to get published because one, I already know it's not going to work. Two, I know even if it did work, I could do better because it was my first attempt. It took me, it was about four and a half years. It took me a year to write the first draft, a year to write the second draft, another year to write like 18 to 19 more drafts and then querying. So as desperate as I had initially been for that story to get me at least an agent, because I feel like as emerging writers, we want that agent to validate us and to validate our dreams. So you're like, oh, it doesn't even have to be published right now, but please look at this and say, I have so much talent. You can't bear not to scoop me up now, which you actually don't want. It's like, realize your talent. I think that would be have confidence in yourself and have confidence in your dream and like realize your talent pick up those books that are killing it and read them and be honest about the gap. This isn't even as writers. I would say as humans, we're so afraid of honesty. We are so afraid of honesty. And it's like, but it is your friend. If you can pick something up and be like, I am not here yet. This story grabbed me. I'm not even done with the first page. I am not here yet. You now have something very tangible and concrete to work towards. We were doing a Zoom with the writers in my online masterclass, The Writer's Roadmap. And we were talking about querying. And they're like, well, how do you query? And I pulled up like young adult fantasy authors. And I'm like, oh my God, my name's there now. And that was crazy for me because five years ago, like just in the Google search, it's like Philip Pullman and Lee Bardugo and stuff here. And I'm like, that's me. That's me. That's my little picture. And that was everything to me. Cause I was like, that's literally a five-year journey of me Googling and seeing the people who show up and really, really wanting to be there, but also realizing, okay, there's a reason these people are there. Yes. The publishing industry is extremely competitive, but the, the authors who are killing it, their books are incredible. Like I am always dizzy reading Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo because I'm like this world building. You have Taz walking across a bridge and you're describing little knots from so and said culture and I can't do it. Like your mind. Same with An Ember in the Ashes with Summit to Here. It's like I, I read that book and I was dehydrated and I was like, my God. So it's it's easy to be intimidated by great works, but I think the better mindset is to be inspired and to look at them as a benchmark and be like, I want my book to be able to sit on a shelf with this book. And it's a challenge to yourself because if you rise to the challenge, I find that I personally have found the text that rise to that standard of storytelling. They break through, they push through because they grab people. And when the text has like a beating heart from the author, it's like, you feel that. So I guess I have a more a more hopeful approach because I'm like, if you realize your talent and you bring yourself up to that level, that's a much more useful thing to focus on than, oh my God, these this agent gets 150,000 queries a year and it takes two clients. Like when I was trying to publish my first book, like those were the numbers that were scaring me. When I decided I'm going to make this work because I tried for four years on something and ostensibly failed and I still want to do it okay, now it's go time. It wasn't about the numbers. It wasn't about how many people make it. It wasn't about how many people debut. It wasn't about how many people debut with a a big deal. It was like, no, I'm going to bring myself to this level and I'm just going to work 
really work my ass off. So I'm tired, but it's... <laughs> and, and just in terms of like where you got that idea. So, so I read that you were working as a data analyst in Los Angeles. And one morning before work, you spotted an illustration of a black girl with bright green, is it hair or eyes? Yeah, it was, she had like really green hair. Green hair. And this yeah. like inspired you and you couldn't get this image out of your head. And you were like... This was roiling. So, so from then to when you started writing to when you pitched it to somebody at Pitch Balls, what was that time frame then between all of that? Honestly, that was the four months. It was around, it was around the four months because it's basically, okay, we're around May. The Pitch Wars submission window is August. So it's like, I've been leading up to this all year. I decide you're not going to send this book you've been spending four years on it's not a good use of the opportunity. And so it's like, okay, well, you have this other story. And I discovered I'd been inspired for the world of Children of Blood and Bone uh, from a trip to Brazil, like eight months earlier. I discovered the Arisha in the gift shop and I was, it just like instantly the world came to me. So it's like, I saw the land, I saw the jungle, I saw like the giant lions. I just didn't have the character. So when I discovered, I think I was at work or something, which... Yeah, I'm, I'm always like, you did a lot of writing at work, but <laughs> I discovered the girl with the green hair and it was such a captivate. She had like beautiful brown skin and the, I think she had like purple eyes. It was a very sci-fi picture, but it just me, I saw it and I wanted more and I just, I wanted a web comic or something. And there wasn't there. So my mind just started playing and it was like, okay, well, what if she's like a fisher, like a fisherman's daughter in some space colony? And okay, what if someday, one day she has to like go to the market to trade a fish for some reason? And then what if this like princess runs up to her and is like, you have to get me out of here. And I was like, is that a story that feels like a story? And so it was like the sci-fi inspiration. And I was like, wait, this fits into this world that I haven't had any characters for. So I was so excited about the possibility, but it was an idea and I had four months till pitch wars. And I was like, okay, you know what? It had taken me a year to write a first draft before and then another year to write a second draft. And I was like, you wouldn't need at least a second draft to apply to pitch wars. And so I was like, you might as well try because- if you try and fail, you're going to be a lot closer to like, you're just going to have a lot more written than don't try it all and hold off for another year. So let's try and do the impossible. And it really was the impossible. Now I'm like, I can get about 150 good pages out in a month. And I'm always like, how you wrote like double this under extreme duress four years ago. So it's like, I'm always trying to hit that pitch wars level, but I can't. Um, I'm like, okay, you can get like 150 pages if you're good. But yeah, I outlined in a month. I pooped out the first draft. <laughs> I deliriously edited the second draft. I didn't have time to read it. I didn't have time to know if it was good, if it was working, if what was happening in my head was getting on the page. It was like down to the wire. And again, I could throw myself at it because I'm like, even if you don't get selected, you are going to have two drafts in two months, which is so much better than the two years it took you before. So I always say the book that got the rejections was kind of like my MFA because it taught me how to write. It taught me how to revise. It taught me about publishing. It taught me about query. It also solidified my oh, you really want this because it didn't just work out on the first try. And had it not been for that experience, I wouldn't have been able to like crank out CBB in four months, at least the starts of it. But 
yeah, I sent it and I, it got a really warm reception and I got to choose between my mentor and I worked with Ashley Hearn. She's an editor, uh, I think Page Street now. I don't want to mess that up. Google her. Uh, she was a really wonderful mentor. She sent me this like 10 page edit letter. She had this very clear vision um, for how to make my story more cohesive. I think she taught someone taught me that a good editor helps you tell the story that you were trying to tell the first time. Um, so she got it and it was a wonderful experience. And then when we got to the agent round, like two months later, just resounding, like I say, with the first book I tried to get published, it was six months for like 63 rejections. And then with Children of Blood and Bone in six days, I had like 12 or 15 offers of representation. So that is the thing about publishing. It really is a drought. It's an endless drought for years. And then when it rains, it floods. And it has been a whirlwind in the best ways and the worst ways ever since, because it has been a dazzling journey. Um, it's also taken an incredible toll physically, mentally, emotionally. Yeah, I really feel like the just working like a dog for five years caught up with me this year. And my body was like, we can't do it anymore. We got to figure out something more sustainable. So it has been a journey, but it's a big, I guess I'm, I'm grateful for my journey because one, I know we have a million multiverse movies right now, but I'm very much like, well, you can't change anything because you don't know how it alters the fabric of things. So I am very much the writer that's like, nah, this is fine. I'll keep the timeline as is. Uh, nothing too great has been lost. A lot of things have been learned. But what I love about it is I've had a really interesting journey. And so when I get to talk to writers, I get to give them a different perspective because it's like I've been there. It's like, no, I was in my room querying. I was at work being on cloud nine when someone would request a full. And then when someone would be like, it's not going to work out, I'd then be like playing Evanescence and put on my headphones. And it's like, no one talked to me. Such, such a roller coaster, you it, know, the, the highs are the high and the, yeah, lows are it really doesn't low. Stop. That's yeah. what I'll, that's what I always tell the writers in my class. I'm like, the way you feel now, I'm like, you kind of just keep feeling it no matter what. Because you think, oh, I get that agent, I'll be good. I get that publishing deal, I'll be good. I get that movie, I'll be good. I hit the bestsellers list, I'll be good. I'm like, no, you're literally, you're always just on this roller coaster of emotion. And the goalposts shift a lot too, you know? It shifts. Because your idea of success changes as well. But Tommy, we don't have much more time with you. So yeah. what I really want to focus on the writer's roadmap. Because honestly, yeah. who better qualified to be teaching writers how to to do this, how to be on this journey than you who've done this so intensely. So can you tell our listeners about that course, what it entails, where they would want to sign up, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, of course. The Writer's Roadmap is, it's like my happy baby because the books are like my screaming babies. Um, <laughs> they're the bad ones. The Writer's Roadmap is my happy baby. It is an online masterclass that we launched around April of 2020. Um, We've been, been planning on it for a couple of years, but I something that has always been important to me is the journey to getting the education required to become a published author. It's unique for every person, but I'm a very, I'm a slither claw. Um, I'm very ambitious and I'm like, can you make an Excel sheet for it? 
<laughs> where's our list? Where's our this? So I found in the road to children of blood and bone, I had to cobble together my education from like books, from writers conferences, from my own experiences, from gently stalking other writers. I made my own curriculum and it had incredible results. And I'd always just wish that there was one place I could have gone to learn everything, both how to actually go from ideas to a finished story, because it's I for all those years I spent writing, it's like I couldn't finish stories. So I was writing thousands of pages, but I didn't have a concrete book. So just getting the education on how you actually go from an idea to like fleshing it out to a story and being able to have a draft, which you then get to work on to make your publishing dreams real, but even how to take the idea you have for a story and like grow it and expand it and make it something more marketable and exciting and personal and not just go from like, that'd be cool. What if she could shoot lightning? And then 75 pages later, you're like, this doesn't really have much meat to it. So it was really just taking my entire writing process and putting it in an online masterclass that my writers have access to 24 seven, it's lifetime access. We open for enrollment like two to three times a year um, and we're on Thinkific and we have these monthly Zooms, we call them mentorship calls and we just get to come together and everyone asks questions and we get to learn and we talk about everything, whether it's like world building or like how to market yourself today or how to branch into other fields of entertainment, um, what it takes to be a writer all. And also I would say the emotions of it, because this is, it's even with all the incredible success I've been blessed to have, I'm like, this is still a very cherished dream. Writers are very sensitive. We're babies. We're babies. We love these stories. And I think we have very gentle hearts and I have a gentle heart, but it's like, I also have teeth. So I'm like, okay, I step up as mama bear and just want to create this thing to share this knowledge, give writers a place to connect and start really educating them about the nuances of building a career as a writer. Because I find so many of us have ideas where it's like, we're not just excited about books. We love TV. We love movies. We love webtoons. And something that I get more and more excited about as I continue my career is realizing how many opportunities there are for us. Like right now, everyone in their mother has a streamer. You know, I'm like, those, all of those places are looking for stories. All of these 90, I would say to 95%. Don't quote me though. Don't have one person in the comments. Be like, actually it's 93.2%. A lot of what we are seeing on our screens comes from books. You know, it comes from people sitting alone in their room, wrestling with these stories in their heads. So I, even despite the intense turmoil it's like you saw whose stock was up in the pandemic, like Netflix, Disney, like entertainment is it's crucial. And there's essentially there is space for us. There is space for our dreams and space for us to build a career as a writer. So the writer's roadmap is my online masterclass. And we open, we're open for enrollment now. We're launching the new generation, January 12th. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm, we get a great crop of students every time and we're just building it out and building out new opportunities. So, so yeah, it's my, it's my happy little writing baby. This course just sounds absolutely amazing. I know that as an emerging writer, this is exactly what I wanted then. And I'm kind of frustrated that I didn't have it then, but you know, 
what Tommy has very generously done is uh, she's put something together for all of our delegates who are signing up for our virtual retreat. The shit no one tells you about writing virtual retreat at the end of January. Tommy, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, uh, we have a special code for the delegates for this retreat. It is $50 off the course. Um, so I will be sending it to everyone who signs up for this retreat. And I'm really excited. I would love to see you guys in this class and join this community. I can't imagine a better way to start off your creative year than signing up with Tommy's course because, you know, we say often, bum in the chair, get that idea, crystallize it, work on it. But always we're saying master your craft, master your craft, yes. learn more, apply everything you're learning. And uh, this is a really exciting way to kind of say, this is how I'm beginning my creative year. I'm taking this course and I'm going to be applying that. Now, Tommy, is it useful for people who already have a work in progress or is it better for as they're beginning a project or does it not matter? Is it something they can apply to a new project or to a work in progress? Yes, it is applicable to a new project. It's applicable to a work in progress. It's actually a course I use like when I am starting my books. Um, I use it for revision. It really is. It's designed to meet you wherever you are and be applicable, not just to what you're writing now, but things you might want to write in the future, things you've written in the past. Um, it really is. It's 24-7 lifetime access. So you're able to use it for whatever you need. And the other great thing is we're always adding to it. We're always adding materials. We're adding case studies. We're adding Zooms. We're adding opportunities, really special opportunities just for our writers. So I am. I just can't wait to see how it grows. It's because we've had, what, 500 plus students over the past year and a half. We had Valentino sponsor 50 students last Christmas. Um, for an emerging writer scholarship. So it really is just this baby that is growing. And yeah, my dream is for it to be this hub for new writers. And because it's like you said, this is what I wish I had when I was starting out. So it's really gratifying to be able to provide that and also create a community where I see these writers growing together. So yeah, this is, this is just the beginning. And I would love, love, love to see your delegates in this course. So I will send you guys the code and yeah, feel free to email, right? Our, our website is the writersroadmap.net. So feel free to go there, email with any questions. Yeah. Enrollment opens January 12th. Amazing. Thank you so much, Tommy, for taking the time to chat. Thank you. To us, for our listeners, if you haven't read Children of Blood and Bone and Children of Virtue and Vengeance, I don't know why. There's no excuse. <laughs> I personally hope that a ton of our delegates do sign up for that course. And, and for the rest of you, begin your creative year with a bang. And this is an excellent way to do it. Thanks, Tommy. Awesome. Thank you, Bianca. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. 
Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. 
I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.